Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hello and welcome to this special episode of Idaho Reports. As communities across the country hold protests against racism and police brutality, retiring state Senator Sheree Buckner-Webb of Boise approached us to host a conversation about race in Idaho and we're honored to do so. Tonight I talked to Boise City Councilwoman Lisa Sanchez and Boise State University Professor Michael Strickland about the role of protests and vigils in affecting change. Then Senator Buckner-Webb and Philip Thompson, director of the Idaho Black History Museum, discussed the history of racism in Idaho and what more needs to be done. First, some breaking news tonight. The Idaho National Guard is sending about 400 personnel to Washington, D.C. to assist in guarding monuments and other buildings around the nation's capital. That activation of Guard members happened today, June 4th, and those Idahoans will be at their stations by tomorrow. We'll continue following the story in coming days. While protests and unrest in larger metropolitan areas have received the most national media attention, Idaho communities from Sandpoint to Idaho Falls are holding their own events to stand up against racism. While a handful of people have been arrested for vandalism and one counter-protester was arrested for discharging his firearm, these events have been overwhelmingly peaceful, even when participants are angry. Here's a look at two very different events that happened in Boise on Tuesday, June 2nd. One, a quiet vigil attended by an estimated 5,000 people in remembrance of George Floyd and other arm, unarmed people who have been killed by police. And an unrelated rally later that night in which Black Lives Matter protesters clashed with armed counter-protesters. We still have racism, you know, within the community, whether it be quiet or whether it be blunt, whether it be through police brutality, we need to make a stand. responsibility to be better people. We have a responsibility to ensure that we are seeing and recognizing the humanity of folks regardless of their race, regardless of their language, regardless of their education or background. And that's not to say be colorblind because that's not useful. What I'm saying is see other folks' experience, whether it's race-based or gender-based or age-based, and honor that experience, right? For me, I'm looking at the end part of the situation. What's going to be the outcome, you know, of all of everybody getting together and so for me it's like when when you get I haven't witnessed uh, blacks and whites coming together as they have over the United States you know you have your rights which that that kind of you know knocks it off course or whatnot but out here I see that everybody's come together this is a vigil 
I felt like there wasn't that many people in Boise that kind of like supported like you know our our skin color or even even noticed us because we're not like there's not many of us here. Second time to turn on your candles. George Floyd. We have to learn how to see each other, really see each other, and that starts from seeing ourselves. To come here today and see the amount of people that showed up to this event, it was remarkable. I just, I feel the love, and I feel, I feel like I'm part of, I'm part of the community now. I don't feel like I'm alone. As you likely noticed, the tone and energy of those two unrelated events were completely different. While experienced community leaders urged Idahoans to wait for organized events, several younger folks participated in protests throughout the last week in downtown Boise that were largely put together via Snapchat and other mediums. I spoke to Michael Strickland of Boise State University and Boise City Council member Lisa Sanchez about the protests and vigils and what role there is for these young, passionate Idahoans who want to see change. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Both of you had cautioned in the days leading up to that vigil that we saw to, uh, you, you were telling people to be really careful about which events you choose to go to because of security issues and not knowing who was planning this. Uh, Professor Strickland, can you tell us why that was such a concern? Well, I can give a classic example. Uh, a few different media outlets had referred to a march planned by the Black Lives Matter chapter in Boise. There is no Black Lives Matter chapter in Boise. Some of the leaders who are friends of mine have attempted to start one and it requires a lot of things that they weren't ready to put together yet. There is a Facebook page and it has been run by a few different people over the years and the individual on the page now is someone that neither me or other established leaders in the black community, as well as a variety of leaders in the overall civil rights community here in Boise, Idaho, had never heard of. So imagine going to an event, there's no safety plan, who's in charge of communication, uh, what happens if someone does something, are certain things allowed, whether it's weapons or not, what are the rules, who's going where and doing what. So I was trying to tell people just because you see something on the internet doesn't mean that it's necessarily true. and 
effectively to organize a march, all you need is a Facebook and an Instagram and uh, a bunch of bad actors could get together and do something dangerous. Well, and, and we've certainly seen a lot of organizing from especially young people via Snapchat and other social media that perhaps older people don't use quite as much. Uh, Councilmember Sanchez, I wanted to get your thoughts on, uh, on protests and, and being careful about which ones people attend to choo uh, choose to attend. Yeah, um, you know, I myself, I, I have a history in participating in actions at the State House. I was arrested in 2014 uh, with several other individuals in support of Add the Four Words. But I was invited by a friend of mine to participate in those actions. And so I knew the people involved. And I think it's important. It's important, especially, you know, people have high emotions about these issues but it's really not about you, the individual, it's about the cause. And are you showing up in support of the cause or are you showing up without the proper information, without vetting who is putting on the event? And are you gonna be a part of something that's gonna be damaging to the cause? That said, we have seen so much emotion and energy from these young folks who are showing up, um, black people, people of color and white people I was at two of these protests and I was easily one of the oldest people there by at least 15 years. I mean, a lot of teenagers. So what is their role in this kind of activism when they want to get out there and they want to march and they want their voices heard? Well, if we start with marching, you know, Boise State University has a Martin Luther King March every year. Uh, as well as University of Idaho, as well as Idaho State University. So I encourage young people to get involved in established marches with organizations such as Boise State. Uh, there are things, of course, to do other than marching. Marches are exciting and energizing, and I understand why they appeal to young people. Uh, here in Boise, we have the NAACP, we have the ACLU, uh, we have the Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence, and they have lots of opportunities not only to get out there and pump your fists, but to help out, to work with people, to advocate for underrepresented populations, to help with fundraising. Uh, I recently started an Idaho Human Rights Collective, and what we'll be doing is uh, working and affiliating with a lot of those organizations in order to enhance uh, specific initiatives. So one of the things I would say to young people is there are marches every year uh, I guess the Martin Luther King March in Boise this coming year should be filled to the brim, right? Let's not wait for murder, okay? That's my message. Don't wait for murder. Uh, there's also the Idaho Black History Museum. We've had events there where very few people come. Show up now, okay? Councilmember Sanchez, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. What is the role for young people who don't necessarily have the connections or the interest in deferring to established leaders in the community? So I had... Latinas, I had Mexican-American women who were in my life through my workplace. I worked at a clothing store called The Farm Store. And my boss was 10 years older than me, Rachel Castro Hernandez. And uh, my colleague, Patty Reyes, who was five years older than me, they were my mentors. And they, they showed me the tools that I needed to be to be a good person, to be a good citizen. And, uh, and that's what we need. We need individuals to step forward and help mentor and guide people who are five to 10 years younger than them. Because as you said, the older we get, the, the harder it is to make that connection. Um, and so that's what we need. We need to bridge those, uh, those generations so that they can guide these young people. Because it, like Professor Strickland said, 
the march is one thing, but that's not where the real work happens. And we need, we actually need these young people to get involved to make a long-term commitment to social justice. I have heard from so many viewers kind of quietly saying, there's not really a racism problem in Idaho, is there? This isn't an Idaho issue. And it, it's, it seems to be this discomfort with acknowledging that there is a racism problem in Idaho, like the Middleton School District issue that we saw a couple years ago, uh, like, like so many of these small um, news stories that pop up every once in a while. We do have a, racial, a different racial makeup in Idaho than um, other cities and states in this country, but we do have so many people of color here, whether they are in indigenous communities or Latino communities or black people or refugee communities in Twin Falls and Boise. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you about how this misconception that there's no racism here because we don't have a huge black population. And I'd start with you, Professor. Okay, <laughs> the answer to the question is, uh, it's a classic misconception. They're confusing racism with acts of hostility and newsworthy, newsworthy stories, okay? Confusing racism with acts of hostility, individual or group, and newsworthy stories. They're not looking at, for example, speak to a woman like Lisa Sanchez about her experience at Boise State, not just the hostile murder you saw on TV. How many bad experiences did she have that indicated racism? Uh, did she feel left out of things? Did she feel lack of support? Uh, go to the Multicultural Center at uh, Boise State University, speak to Roe Alvarado Parker, people like that, and listen to the students there and the stories they tell about their experiences, some of which are not very good. One example of Boise State is people of color who are great leaving uh, for a wide variety of reasons. So uh, racism is an attitude of superiority. And then there are acts of discrimination, which are the actions that take place. They're not always in the paper, so it becomes even more insidious. It's effectively invisible. And once again, it takes something that's visual sometimes, like a murder, to get people aware that we've got symptom there of many deep underlying issues. You know, um, that's about all the time we have, but briefly, Professor, could you give us uh, a description one more time of this new initiative that you are starting? Oh, yes. <laughs> I have formed the uh, Idaho Human Rights Collective, and uh, we have a team of advisors, uh, people of color, as well as uh, just people from the greater community, who are involved in progress and civil rights. And you can look that up online. Hopefully people can dump, donate or come out to some of the events that'll be uh, publicized on our site. All right, well, thank you both so much for your time. I know you've been incredibly busy lately and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. You can find our full discussion on the Idaho Reports Facebook page. I want to welcome our guests tonight, Senator Cherie Buckner-Webb and Philip Thompson, director of the Idaho Black History Museum. And I want to note that you are mother and son, so social distancing isn't as much of a problem for you two on set here. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh, Philip, I wanted to start with you about the history of racism in mm -hmm. Idaho, because this isn't a new problem. Yeah, I mean, in Idaho, the, the, 
Idaho has a unique and rather like contradictory history when it comes to racism. Um, yes, in fact, we have an, a, a freakishly small black population or any non-white population in, in Idaho, and that's been true throughout its history. Yes, Idaho had exclusionary laws um, the minute you know emancipation took place in 1865. Um, Idaho had exclusionary laws trying to keep blacks out and forbidding us from t um, attending public schools. But what's often missed in that is blacks were already here who had come for um, economic reasons, mining, um, farming, et cetera. My family came out here homesteading. And that um, Idaho was at the forefront of states that actually integrated schools. I mean, it was in the late 1800s that blacks were now um, allowed to go to school in Idaho. So um, yes, there's always been a very small population, but we didn't have the deep-seated infrastructure or systemic legislative um, effort statewide to keep a people disenfranchised. The population was so small, yes, you had you know certain concentrations of people living in a given area in Boise, um, and, but not like River Street, for example. You had more blacks there than anywhere else, but most blacks by numbers weren't there. So that's kind of a contradiction. And so because that population was so small, there wasn't as much of a need legislatively to forbid blacks from gaining access, but there was still a concerted effort to keep us in, in our place. place, for lack of a better word. We, weren't, we had not hit a critical mass, no matter where we were present in the state of Idaho. So if there weren't too many of them, you didn't have to worry about them. They were going to know their place. I mean, it wasn't safe for them to step outside their places, if you, would, if you would. I mean, they were looking, let's go along and get along. Let's let me feed my family. Maybe let me even buy property and move forward. So that, that's part of the history of, of that happen, happening. And in, in more recent history, we've seen issues with Aryan nations and other white nationalist groups taking root, unfortunately, in North Idaho. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, too, about this intersection with uh, policing and the tactics that police departments use. And, and this is something that you know, Philip, with, uh, working with the Boise PD. So, and, and again, Boise's got a, a complicated history as far as policing. If you look at in their mid-90s, the early 90s, um, Boise flat out had a policing problem across the board. I mean, uh, we had a disproportionately high number of police-related shootings, police-related homicides that were not predicated on race. It was just poor policing, uh, poor policy. Since then, you see a much more uh, forward-thinking, community-minded, um, talk before shooting, you know, civic-minded, you know, the, the, the need for education for the police now, um, the fact that they have these liaisons to the different groups, but you had a concerted, you now have a concerted effort to make connections with the community to lessen this notion of you're the community, we're the police, do as I say, and now they much work more in tandem. And so the police force, in my personal opinion, has come leaps and bounds. It's not perfect. I don't want to sound like I'm some person that thinks that our police force is infallible, but I do commend them on the steps they've made to um, lessen these problems. But we do still have a disproportionate treatment of blacks in the criminal justice system, especially when it comes to communities who, other than their being black, are not represented. Uh, refugee community, for one, is one that's usually not in the criminal justice system in Ada County, but the um, frequency of which is disproportionate for black refugees. So we have these um, undercurrents and these notions of, of a problem that may not be widely known, not be widespread, you know, uh, beatings, et cetera, but there is still a, a, a notion of being um, guilty while being black. 
And with the different racial dynamics that we have here, Hispanic men are also disproportionately affected by exactly. policing and incarceration. Or those assumed to be Hispanic men. That's the other thing. People get confused. Just they know that it's not a white person and they get stopped. And, and the, the, the real problem is that those that are stopped are feeling like that it is ten intentional and perhaps based on race. And it may or may not be. But when we see the numbers and what the percentages show us, give us cause for pause based on what we've, uh, historical trauma and treatment by police officers. You layer that too with the fact that Idaho has uh, per capita one of the highest number of officer-involved shootings in the nation, looking at CDC data. And Philip, you and I had talked about this a little bit before. There are some different factors there. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the parts of the city, or part of the state, where there's the vast majority of the population, which is like the greater Boise metro area, that no longer remains true. It's the other parts, the outliers of, 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 of Idaho, that contribute to this disproportionate use of force. And so I'm not trying to, again, I'm not trying to um, qualify or dismiss those those numbers, but we have to look at it from and the whole thing. We can't just take a piece of it and say, okay, this is a problem in Idaho as a whole. It's like, no, there's a problem in certain places, but let's not um, accuse the entire state of wrongdoing. One of the things that I have to say is the last two police chiefs have worked, and I mean, I, I could speak to three that I know of and have known uh, what has happened, what I've seen in the community, have worked purposefully to diminish those issues that cause us great uh, angst and that have gotten us to those numbers. It has been purposeful action, and, and I think in any police um, uh, community anywhere in the world, it takes purposeful action. It takes intentionality. It, it takes looking at myself, and am I treating each person I stop the same way? Is there a, a, a level of, um, I believe, perceived in, in, uh, innocence, you know, credibility for the white guy that I stop, but if I stop the black guy, do I just assume something's up? I don't know what it is, but it's something. And that's, I mean, that's what the concern is. And, 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 I'm, and I'm really proud to say that at least Boise Police Department's been working really hard on that. I want to talk to you a little bit about that intention uh, and that this intersection between individual responsibility and systemic responsibility, mm -hmm. because they're both at play here. Uh, and, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that, Senator. It's not either or, and I think that's what we have to remember. Whether you're the victim or you're the perpetrator, whatever it is, whether you're the police officer or you're the other person that wants to be in the community, you have to know there's and both. I have preconceived notions about who you are as a white woman. If I'm a police officer coming up for you and as a white woman, I might get really, really nervous and hurt. Well, you know, we get we see a police thing, we get a little nervous. If I'm a black woman, I might have a little triple threat going. Am I going to be doubly um, scrutinized? And that's based on historical trauma, not just my own, but that that I've seen in the black community. So I, I'm, the importance is the and both, not either or. And if we can try to manage those two paradoxes, we'll have a lot better um, opportunity to, to work in hand in hand with the police and with each other to make a positive change. Can you talk a little bit about those different power dynamics and, and the responsibility that an individual has to educate themselves? Uh, that's so important to me. I, I don't know how many times somebody's saying, what can I do? And I, that, I didn't mean to sound like that. What can I do? I mean, these are very highly functional people that have jobs and families and maybe wealth and power, and they go, what can I do to fix it? I want to go, gee whiz, gosh, isn't it amazing that you have no clue what to do? What are you doing now? Why is it not working? How do you talk to people? If my son, Philip, poor guy, he never got to wear jeans and cutoffs and all that stuff, they had to dress differently because I said people are going to assume something different about you. That's one of the things. So if I, as a white guy, 
um, see you that way. Am I going to judge you to be a hoodlum if you walk up as a black guy, but I see the white kid do it, and, and it's okay. I have preconceived notions. So I have to work on myself. I'm going to say, what do I know? And, and as a black person, am I going to carry all that so far that I assume no matter what, I know they're looking at me differently. I have to do this. I have to do that. That's another one of those and both, and both. We can both do something. We have to be conscious of our actions. We have to be purposeful about our actions. We've got to check ourselves out. Why did I say that that way? Was I worrying about my safety? Was I worrying about my future? Was I being earnest and honest? Was I giving this guy or this gal the same uh, hand up? The same thing happens with um, women in non-traditional roles. I mean, is she expected she better be in heels and so on, so on, so on. The guys can come in in their flip-flops and their shoes. I mean, we do that kind of stuff. We have to check our own stuff. That's the starting point. Check ourselves out and not insult a person's personhood. We, we as, as particularly one-down populations, we get rewarded for homeostasis. If we keep maintaining what you think about me and what you think about me, I just keep reinforcing that. I'm not helping you out either. But by the way, you need to do your work too. Yeah. And you're, as the director of the Idaho Black History Museum, that is dedicated to education. You know, are, are you seeing an increased interest? Oh, absolutely, well, especially like these last, I mean, since these, um, this overabundance of racial, um, racially motivated events in such a short time and happening at a time where people already have an elevated state of anxiety due to the pandemic, and they're seeing the messaging time and time again because for the most part people are home. I believe it's been like this confluence of terrible circumstances, but if we can utilize it properly, it might be a point of um, that we can have some education that we can come out of this better than we went into it. Because for the vast majority, I, I honestly believe that their disbelief wasn't based on animus or, or um, I, I don't like those people so it can't possibly be true but truly an issue of perspective because they had not seen it in their circle or hadn't seen it perpetrated where they live. And so the reality where they exist is in complete contradiction to the reality of those that has, you know, that's being preyed upon by the police. And so it became such a, a fundamental disconnect because it wasn't in keeping with what I know as reality. People are being forced to see that, oh my gosh, they weren't just making this up. Oh, it wasn't being exaggerated. It wasn't a one-off, insulated, isolated incident. This is a, a mode of operation that is um, widespread. I mean, especially if you look at like Minnesota, where you had armed, um, mm. an insurrection of armed white men who were upset about having to stay at home, screaming in the face of law enforcement violently. I mean, toting an arm, I don't know what's more violent action than that. No action was taken. You don't call on the SWAT team. But if you're um, protesting police brutality in that same city, nonetheless, the reaction is to brutalize those who are protesting, commit greater acts of brutality, and bring in the SWAT team and tear gas them. And that, to me, was like such a um, eye-opening experience. It was within a couple weeks of each other that people say, wow, we really fundamentally have a problem here. You couldn't qualify or say, well, the socioeconomic conditions of that area are entirely different from what happened over here. This was the same area within a week or two of each other that the actions perpetrated on said people were so different. We have about a minute left. Uh, as people's attention is on the problem of systemic racism in this country, how do we as a society avoid losing momentum? One of the things I'd like you to see is a tsunami of truth telling, that we speak the truth to one another. 
Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not comfortable enough to tell you everything. But if you ask me something, I want to be able to take the risk, and it is a risk often, to tell you the truth, and I want you to hear it. Not try to fix me, but hear it, and then we can go from there, doing the next steps. Philip. And to me, it's much more to check it. I'm on the intellectual side that um, feelings are important and need to be voiced. But how do we jump in and make an actual change to the system that's at play? that we can change the outcomes on the back end. Yes, you're, you're, how you feel needs to be heard, but most importantly, we need to change the machine that's causing the problem. And that's not touchy-feely, that's about, de we, we deny racism, that's, there's a kind of schizophrenia in that. That's right. what I'm saying, truth teller. Thank you both so much for your thank time. You. We appreciate thank it, and thank you for watching. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.